0: Hey, I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The account of the birth of Jesus reads like this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray together. Father, now we ask that, um, well, before we ask anything, we praise your holy name. A little bit later on in Luke 2, it says, there has been born for us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So hallowed be your name. And now from these verses, we seek your help. What you want us to know, see, understand, believe, trust, grab hold of, deepen in our uh, understanding of, all all into loving you, we ask that you would do that from this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, last month I encouraged you to get This book that we've been reading through, The Gifts of Grace by Jared Wilson, and this morning's reading, or today's reading, uh, the gift that he's emphasizing is the gift of, of love, God's love for us. And in that, uh, I was really encouraged. I hadn't read this in advance, but it kind of does a better job, really, of summarizing my sermon than I have, so, uh, so I thought I'd read it, and, and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. He says, Jesus doesn't love some put-together religious version of us. That's good news, isn't it? In our lowest, meanest, most desperate moments, Jesus sees us. He sees and knows the real you, right? That's, That's good news because it means he knows and loves the real us. At all times, he goes on to write, he sees through our facades, through the makeup we put on to look spiritual to everybody else, and through the personal avatars we send to church each Sunday, hoping everyone will be fooled and impressed. He sees through it all, and he sees the real us, and he loves us. I heard Ray Ortland say one time, you can have a choice between two things. You can either be impressive or you can be known for who you really are, right? And, and most of us feel that tension a little bit. Uh, Luke 2, some real things going on. And so uh, the, the title I've given to this message are the four emotions of Christmas. Christmas does tend to be an emotional time. Anybody here got emotions? There is something right, about the Christmas season that really heightens the emotions. So we're going to talk about four pretty common emotions that you likely feel pretty deeply. But before we do that, I just want to talk about emotions for a moment. Perhaps you're, somebody's described you as an emotional person, or he or she really wears their emotions on their sleeve, right? I think you've heard that phrase as well. God made you and designed you and wired you in such a way that you really have real emotions, They are an important part of you, but as we'll talk through, um, I think it is important to know what part of you they are. They are an important part, but they're not the most important part or the one that should necessarily dominate every other part of you. But the truth of the matter is, we live in a culture that really does highlight emotions. You're more likely to be asked in dealing with hardship or Maybe something exciting or a change in life to say, you're likely more likely to be asked, how do you feel about that than you're ever asked, what do you know about that, right? So uh, we were taking a walk as our family yesterday, and I was kind of praying uh, through the sermon for today, and we were walking our dog. I wasn't walking the dog. Somebody else was walking the dog. And I just kind of had the thought that uh, it's a little bit of a picture, that emotions are here, they're part of it, but... Uh, we walk the dog, the dog doesn't walk us. But I've been in a situation where the dog walked me. You know what I'm saying? Emotions, important. And Man, there's a lot of emotions. In fact, the four emotions that we'll talk about that really rise up at Christmas, they're right here. Powerfully in these seven verses. So let's talk about emotion number one. We'll put it on the screen. Emotion number one is this, disappointment. Definition of disappointment. To fail to fulfill the expectations or wishes of. Now, kind of a humorous approach. Maybe it's not so funny. I don't know. I want you to think about what your expectation in your family is for this coming December the 25th. I want you to think through what that is. What, what your expectation for that Christmas morning will be like. And here's the... Here's the caveat, right? You, you probably can already say to yourself, it's not going to be like that, right? But man, there's so much expectation, particularly that goes into to, to Christmas. We, we tend to bring serious expectations into Christmas, kind of conditioned by the, by the world around us. I mean, every Christmas movie ends with bells ringing, snow falling, families united. Angels getting their wings, right? I mean, it's just, and then the music comes on and it's powerful and sentimental and then Hallmark comes along and they add a whole extra layer of glaze of sentimental expectation on top, right? Or you cut on the radio and there's Andy Williams blaring, it is the most wonderful time of the year. Expectations are real high. Sometimes the reality is a failure to fulfill the expectations or wishes of I'll give you an illustration put a man's picture on the screen you you probably um, probably don't know who that is uh, you might not recognize him but he made one of the most significant contributions to scientific advancement in the 20th century, uh, century. in fact some historians say he made the most significant Contributions specifically during the Second World War. And if he had not done what he did, the entire course of the war may have gone completely in a different direction. His name is Sir, so he's British, Robert Watson Watt. He's a little bit of everything. He was a physicist, he was a mathematician, he was an engineer, he was a meteorologist, it's actually what he really liked, the weather. He was a poet, pretty well-rounded, right? So his significant Contribution in Britain specifically is that he directed the development of radio detection and ranging. Anybody know what that is? Radio detection and ranging. Radar. What radar, I had to look it up because I have to be honest, I'm no Sir Robert Watson Watt, obviously, is a radio location system that uses radio waves to determine the distance, angle, radial velocity of objects relative to the site. So it's used to detect and track aircraft. It's a big deal, Second World War. Uh, ships, spacecraft, guided missiles, motor vehicles, map, weather, formations, terrain, etc. So, Second World War in particular. 1940 specifically, France is knocked out of the war. Nazi Germany put their full focus on defeating the British, sending wave after wave of aircraft. Sir Robert Watson Watts, really a hard name to say, Development allowed from where they were to see them coming in advance. Still a brutal battle, but without his advancement, likely the British would have been defeated. The reason I'm telling you about this is that years later, after the Second World War, he was driving with his wife in Canada when he was pulled over for speeding. Of course, when the policeman comes to the window, his wife says, do you know who you're giving a speeding ticket to? He says, no, I don't. And she says, how did you pull us over? He said, using the electronic speedometer readout, which is, of course, based on Radar. A little bit of a poet, so I want to put his poem on the screen. Here's what he said. Pity Sir Watson Watt, strange target of this radar plot. And thus with others I can mention the victim of his own invention. And I think about, and there the fine, by the way, it was $12.50 Canadian. I don't know what that is. And Anyway disappointment he must have felt right all of my hard work all my effort and it gets turned in on me disappointment when even it feels like all the hard work you've done boomerangs back onto you so where do you get disappointment in this passage it's in the very first verse man in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. The people, we just take the geographical locations: Galilee, Nazareth, Bethlehem, throughout that region. I mean, we studied this last week in Malachi, Zechariah, they've been given all these promises. The Messiah is going to come, he's going to bring peace. And hope. And here they are under the political rule of Caesar. So big picture, there's huge disappointments. But then we can zoom in on just Joseph and Mary. And nothing's gone the way they would have expected. The Bible does warn us about boasting about tomorrow, right? But we just can't help ourselves. Here's what next year's going to be like. Friends, we don't know. Here's what next week's going to hold. We don't know. I know I ask this about every year, but I'll ask it again. Has anybody, can look back in 2023, this past year, and say, I have dealt with things in this year that I did not see coming. And this part of that can lead into great disappointment. Joseph, we read about it in Matthew 1, devastated about how things had turned out when he didn't know the whole picture, didn't know the... Part of where many of our disappointments come, he doesn't know the whole picture. He had resolved to divorce Mary quietly until an angel showed up and declared that Mary was carrying a child conceived of the Holy Spirit. Whatever expectations, whatever hopes Mary and Joseph had for their wedding festivities, the start of their lives had to be adjusted, to say the least. Your expectations, that you hold, maybe for the Christmas season, Everybody will be around the table and it'll look like a Norman Rockwell painting, right? We hold expectations of perfection. All the children are going to look at the camera at the same time with a perfect smile on their face. Chapter, one, or chapter 2, verse 3. All went to be registered. Can you imagine what that sounded like? The conversations were like? People packed the roads and start traveling? uh I don't think it was a holly jolly Christmas, you know what I mean? Can you believe this? Gotta to go to why 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 is the decree gone out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered? It's taxes. God's revealing something in this passage about a hope that does not disappoint and about hopes that will always disappoint. I think we do well to kind of walk through and see uh, what is the place we should put our hope, because if you place your hope in something other than Jesus, the disappointment is inevitable and likely pervasive and deep. So disappointment, one of the strong emotions of Christmas. Second one we put on the screen is stress. Anybody there? Stress. <laughs> I looked up the definition of uh, the emotion of stress, and the definition was to be stressed. That wasn't very helpful. Kept digging. Another definition said to experience worry. To experience worry. We'll put another picture on the screen just to stress everybody out. It just stressed me out. All right. I played a game for about 18 years of my life called maybe the baby will sleep in the car during the drive. I've never won. Never won. It's stressful, Right? Maybe you're there. I think Pastor Blake mentioned this earlier. I mean, you look at your calendar between now and December 25th, and it's full. Got to be here. Don't want to, don't want to, because disappointment's a real deal. It's Part of the stress is, I don't want to disappoint anybody, right? Another, that one didn't stress you out enough. How about this one? That's the airport. Airplane travel. At the mercy of others, right? Now, that's, those are stressful ways of traveling. But can we talk about this for a moment? I'd still rather go by car. I'd still rather go by plane than, however, Joseph also went up from Galilee. Can we talk about that for a moment? From Galilee to Nazareth, uh, I'm sorry, of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Does anybody know how far that is? About 90 miles. Already, long trip, but what else is going on? my wife is expecting and the baby can come anytime during this trip anybody stressed that stresses me out and the route they go specifically in those days was sort of notorious for being especially dangerous high crime Thieves were numerous. As a matter of fact, if you've got your Bible there, Luke chapter 2, read with me verses 41 to 44. By the sound of things, if you were hoping we'd get out of here before it really started raining, you're disappointed. Don't be stressed. Verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. They began to search among their relatives and acquaintances. But that's not what it says here. Here's what's going on. Talk about stress. The dynamics, and we're about to talk about this in greater detail when we get to our next emotion. He ain't traveling with no group here. Now the roads are probably full and it's, you know, everybody's headed in a certain direction, but there's no detail that they're traveling with relatives. Why? I mean, what's clear from the account is, ain't hardly anybody but Joseph buying this story that Mary's child is conceived with the Holy Spirit. They are ostracized. And family dynamics can be Stressful? I think a few things more stressful than traveling 90 miles with my eight-month-plus expecting wife when everybody I know and love has pretty well turned against us doesn't seem to believe a word we said actually i can't think of something more stressful than that you know what it is fleeing to a foreign country with my family because someone has threatened to kill my small child I, that's more stressful and that's what happens after the birth of jesus they have to flee to egypt so all right if we're going to deal with stress does uh, the birth of jesus all the circumstances that could cause stress evaporate of course not so, stress isn't something we got to cope with or uh, say, man, if my circumstances would just be less stressful, I would be less stressed. And we're going to have to have something better than that. you stressed right now. Just a few things that I think uh, as we walk through the passage, you'll see in greater detail. These are going to be things that are really easy for me to say. But may God give us grace to, to think it through how it would actually work in your life. First, I would say you need to prioritize worship, prioritize worship over rushing. One of the things in the new year, but we don't have to wait until 2024, that I know Paul Triple emphasizes that you really do need a day, you know, a Sabbath, a day that that get recalibrated. Don't rush through life. Just got one, right? Just got one life. And nobody thinks it's passing by really slowly, so so you you need a day to prioritize, all your days, but prioritize worship over rushing. Second, man, I would would encourage you, um, you ain't got to do everything they tell you to do, and your children don't have to have everything you're told they've got to have. You believe, I bet, you believe people matter more than things, you kind of have to give yourself permission to live like you believe it. You know what I mean? It shouldn't be this way. I feel like we say that most every Christmas, but how we often think rushed and such an emphasis on stuff, but but you can't actually live that way. So stress isn't going to be reduced by reducing the stressors. They're not likely to change, but stress is relieved with a realignment of your soul unto the Lord. Hopefully that doesn't cause you more stress. (laughs) And then number three, real emotion at Christmas, sadness. Someone with these definitions, because the definition for sadness was the state of being sad. Not helpful. State of being sad or sorrowful. You know these verses. We know these verses so well that I'm not sure that the weight of the sadness necessarily falls on us. Verse 6 as they, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So I've got another picture for you. Here's what they found when they got to Bethlehem. But as we study the passage and understand the culture and understand the context... When Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, they experienced what to them in that time and that place is about the greatest insult a human being can endure. When we read there was no place for them in the inn, don't think about that as, you, you know, you go right on Winstead and go by the hospital and there's the Holiday Inn and the Hampton Inn and six or seven other hotels, that wasn't a. That wasn't how things were back then. It's not a hotel at every exit. That's not the way the economy worked. It's not just the way the world was. So, when it uses the word "in," they're talking about uh, a, a space in most people's uh, dwelling places that was reserved, particularly to welcome in families, because in those days hospitality was a really big deal. It's not how we are in America in 2023. You're at your house and you hear this, or the doorbell rings. Your initial impulse is to what? Who is that? We're not expecting anybody. Draw the curtains, right? Or the phone rings. Who is that? Don't answer it. It's not how they were. Best way to, we can kind of say it is it's a, the a most important code of honor the people had, especially a especially among families that's why the bible is pointed joseph went up for he was of the house and lineage of david you've opened your bible maybe you do the um daily bible reading for example and you get to certain passages and you say here's my bible reading today and it's just a list of names So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. What is that telling us? Hey, do you know your great-grandparents' names? They would have. All the way back. Why? Family matters. Family's precious. We're in this together. So the sadness comes. Now, it's not just, y'all, it's not just that they would take care of family. They would especially take care of family in need. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. What goes, what goes ahead of that on the list of people in need, right? I mean, in other words, if you're going to help anybody, who are you going to help if you're the house and lineage of David in Bethlehem? Y'all got to get Joseph and Mary and bring them in, but they didn't. Why not? They don't believe the story. Can we just sit with this for a minute? It says in Matthew 1.18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Families had come together. These are the ones that we're going to have Mary. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But he's the only one who's unwilling to put her to shame. Everybody else is shame, 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 shame. Joseph... joined her in the shame you know one of the most familiar scenes decorations and so on that we see is Joseph and Mary and Jesus in the manger and I'm not sure if when we see those scenes that they're incredibly accurate you know what I mean they've been through it This this is one of the most powerful truths I think we can see from Luke 2 in the birth of Jesus. He was born into the real world, into how things really are, into a world with fractured families, into a world that's of confusion, of misunderstanding of political tension into a world of disappointment, stress, and sadness. And Mary and Joseph trusting the Lord, yes, but they have to be sitting there thinking, this is not the way I thought things were going to be. And then we get this I think this is beautiful little detail. It says that she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Why do you swaddle a baby? I have to admit, I never quite was, I couldn't get it tucked right. Julie would always have to come along. Yeah, but why do you swaddle them? To maintain their body temperature. I read, swaddling can make the very young newborn feel more secure and calm as it mimics the tight quarters of the womb. No, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about God himself has to be swaddled. Helps the baby be calm and rest. I think in a great measure, the grace of God is what swaddles your soul, if I can put it that way. It's calm. It's calm. Peace. A swaddled baby relaxes, stops fidgeting, and is calm. Hey friends, the only thing that'll ever do that for your soul—I'm talking about way down deep—is the love of God as given in Christ Jesus. You know, I'm a I'm a dad and a husband, so when I read the passage, my mind usually goes to Joseph. I think there has to be a measure of sadness in his heart, right? As he's as he's there, that this—I uh, mean—we make it uh, kind of quaint, for a lack of better term. They're in this laid in a man i mean they have taken jesus and they've laid him in a feeding trough right i mean uh and i think about joseph he has to be sitting there saying i can't believe this is the best that i can do right now for my wife and this precious baby my family's turned away here's my my precious wife and she's swaddling the baby I, i i need to do more I'm sure he's disappointed. He's stressed. He said, I need to do better than this. But from there, if we lift our eyes up to our Father in heaven, he would not say that. He would say, This, this child, my son, is the very, very, very best that I can ever do for you. Nothing more, nothing greater can be done than this for to us a child is is born so far so far all the emotions we've talked about disappointment stress and sadness get their origin and are sustained by the world but we got a fourth emotion and i will tell you that it doesn't its source is not the world and, and nor will any other emotion be sustained in your life when you receive the joy that comes from heaven. Joy. A little bit better definition. I think this go around. Joy was the emo, is, the, is the emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. So again, disappointment, stress, sadness, that's what comes in and from and through the world. Joy comes from somewhere else. We're tracking together. Joy does not come from this world. Joy comes from heaven through Jesus. Cannot be found anywhere else. we have all seen the, or maybe you've lived through, you know, trying to find just that one toy that's the hot toy of the year. And parents have gone out and they've stood in lines or they've ordered and so on and so forth. But I'm going to tell you, if you want to really go after something with your life, go after joy to be found in in Jesus. I I love this detail. Man, I've read this passage a thousand times probably, but this past week I saw something I hadn't quite seen before. So here we go. Verse 8. In the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, "'Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger.' And there was suddenly with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So here's a little detail. We'll do it quick, but I think it's significant is when you read verse 7, most of it is quoted verbatim by the angel in verse 12, but not the whole thing. So I want you to see it. Verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And then when the angel says the sign, says, verse 12, and this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What's different? What's, what's in one verse but not the other? It's the detail of no place for them in the inn, right? So can we think about this for a moment? This is one of the ways I want to be more like my heavenly father. When the angel announces to the shepherds, the announcement is not, you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger because they didn't have any place for them in the end. He doesn't say that. He just simply says, you'll find the baby. Why is that? Man, I'm not this way. Usually when someone hurts me, does me wrong, or says there's no place for you here, and I just harbor that, I hold on to that. Builds up resentment and bitterness and hurtful. But God doesn't do that. Number one, he knew that would happen, obviously. He knows all things. But I think the whole narrative, the, the, the emphasis is not how we have no place for him. The whole emphasis is about how he has made a place for us. And what's left out is, I think, God's way of saying the wrongs that have been done are not going to have the last word. Now, probably to a deep level in your life, some things have been done wrong to you. But here is something that is of an undeserved grace done for you. The giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. The disappointing part, the stressful part, the sad parts left out. Why? Not because it didn't happen. It did. But because the one swaddled in the manger gets the last word, not what was done to him, but what was done by him. A quote I've been thinking about a lot that I read recently is, a person has to be loved before he or she is lovable. God loved us not when we were lovable. God loved us when we said, We don't have any room for you around here. Jesus, just a few hours before he's crucified, he looks at his disciples and he says, I go and prepare a place for you. Think about what he said. In my father's house, many rooms. My father's house, many mansions. What's he saying? You're not going to... If you come by me, the same chapter where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you come by faith and repentance, repentance and faith in Jesus, you're not going to find a closed door. You're going to find the way is open. Another way you might think about it is, if you by faith say you are the house and lineage of Jesus you will be welcomed now what i want to emphasize in our closing few minutes is why i believe why that is true emotions y'all are powerful And there is no one in this room that it does not tug on your emotions the desire to be home, right? Be at home. And for your home to be a place of rest and peace and belonging and welcoming, to be a safe place, a secure place, a place where you're loved, a place where you uh, uh, are valued, So when Jesus says he goes to prepare a place for you, what does he mean? Matthew chapter 121, Joseph is told, name him Jesus, Yeshua, Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. All right, y'all, real quick, disappointment, stress, and sadness are fruits. They're not roots, they're fruits. Disappointment, the emotional stress, emotional sadness are in our lives because of things. Because of what? This is really significant if you want to know the truth as the Scripture is proclaiming. Disappointment, stress, and sadness are all fruits of the reality of sin. There's no relieving of stress without forgiving of sin. There's no liberated from a lifetime of disappointment and expectations that are unmet without our sins being dealt with. So Jesus deals with our sins on the cross. The amazing account of Scripture is when he arrived and we said, we have no place for you, he responds by saying, I'll actually take your place. All of you who said you've got no place for me, I will take your place on the cross. You feel like there's some disappointment that Jesus endured when he did that? All these disciples, they say, we're going to stick with me. They are nowhere to be found, some stress. And we're told in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's so stressed, he's sweating blood. Sadness? The Bible says there is something that motivated Jesus to endure the cross. But it wasn't disappointment. He could have been consumed with disappointment upon the cross. The disappointment of about everybody misunderstanding his mission. Of Peter saying he would stay with him to the end but ended up fleeing for his life. But he wasn't, neither was he consumed by Stress. Yes, he prayed until he bled and endured greater stress than anyone ever has. But we find him on the cross actually praying for his enemies that they would be forgiven. And it was not sadness. Sadness about the state of the world. Sadness about political expediency of Pilate covering for himself and and, and guarding his own position. So what was it that the Bible says led Jesus to endure the cross? Just listen to it. Look Looking to Jesus, this is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's joy. Because of Jesus, you can be forgiven. We can be reconciled. We can be home Restored to a right relationship with our great God. And y'all, that home is full of joy. You do not have to be the victim of your own invention. You can be the recipient of amazing grace. And the response from heaven to that, according to Luke chapter 2, is they all show up and say, glory to God in the highest. I'm going to invite you to stand with me and we are going to pray together. And then by God's grace, we'll respond to the message we've um, had this morning. You pray with me, and then we'll lead right into a time of response. A couple things real quick. Number one, I want you to always know. I want you to always know it's my joy to stand here at, the, uh, at this time of response. If you've got something on your heart, your mind, you'd just love to, to have someone to pray with you, pray for you. It'd be my joy. Maybe you're here this morning, and you never repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning you see that he has not treated us the way we've treated him. He's responded with grace. And he's not about eliminating the fruits of stress, disappointment, sadness, whatever else the fruits of sin might be. He's cut it out from the very root. Uprooted it and replaced it with greater things. It's rooted in his grace. Love to speak with you, I'd love to pray with you. Life right now What's the strongest, most consistent emotion you feel? Is it disappointment? Is it stress? Is it sadness? Maybe it's something we didn't mention, but it's just pervasive. without being uh, really overly simplistic, I do want you to know that because of Jesus, His grace can reign and rule over your life instead of those things. Father, of course, we need help with that. The battle's ongoing. Life is not smooth, easy. But we are asking that we would be a people marked by the grace of God. We we can echo with those who've gone before us, through many tribulations must we enter the kingdom. All of us are placing our hope, our trust, somewhere. And if it's not Jesus, it'll disappoint. It'll stress us out. It'll fill us with sadness or anger or bitterness, resentment or jealousy, But because of Jesus, you said there can be peace because Christ is going to rescue us, has rescued us from our sins. So fill this sanctuary up now with the joyful, joyful praise of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.